This week, we're introducing a new segment called Change Through Legislation. We'll be talking with legislators about how they're making a difference as lawmakers of color who are able to bring community issues to the forefront by sponsoring legislation and authoring legislation that becomes laws and sometimes the bills that are not yet laws, but they're still pursuing with the eye towards justice and race equity. Welcome to Counter Stories, a podcast by people of color, for people of color, and everybody else. I'm Luz Maria Frias, Deputy Attorney General with the state of Minnesota. Any comments and opinions I make are strictly my own and should not be attributed to my employer. I'm Don Eubanks, Associate of Dendros, Cultural Consultant, and member of the Mille Lacs Band of Ojibwe Indians. And I'm Halili, owner of The Other Media Group and producer of Counter Stories. Anthony Galloway could not be with us today, um, and we are missing him, but know that he'll be with us the next time. We have a very special guest today. Uh, we have State Representative Ruth Richardson. She is a state representative with the Minnesota House of Representatives, representing District 52B. Representative Richardson, um, Thank you for coming and let's hear a little bit more about yourself. I know you were elected in 2018, but please tell us about your district and uh, some of the committees that you are on within the House of Representatives here. Well, first of all, thank you for having me on today's uh, show. I'm really excited to, to be here. So I represent 52B, as you mentioned, which includes uh, Mendota Heights, where I live, Sunfish Lake, Invergrove Heights, and portions of Egan as well. I'm serving my second term in the House of Representatives, and I am currently chair of the Education Policy Committee. I also serve on the Transportation Committee, uh, the Commerce uh, Committee um, as well. And I am, again, really excited uh, to be here today. And I should probably add, I'm also a Speaker Pro Tem, so I get to stand in for the Speaker of the House as well from time to time. That's all very impressive. Uh, let's start by unpacking some of that. Uh, I should also share that you are an attorney by trade as well. Guilty. <laughs> <laughs> um, but tell us more about what it means to be a chair of a committee, particularly the Education Policy Committee. That's a pretty big undertaking. So help us understand what that entails. Sure. So as chair of the Education uh, Policy Committee, the Speaker of the House has entrusted me to really lead on all areas related to education policy within the House. So it includes holding um, committee meetings where we will hear a variety of bills on different uh, topics. Uh, it's also a lot of convening stakeholders, uh, having conversations with parents, with students, uh, school administrators, administrators, teachers, bus drivers, you know, really thinking across the spectrum of uh, paraprofessionals and others within uh, schools. And it's a, it's really a way for us to take a deep look at uh, some of the challenges that we are having in Minnesota specifically around uh, deep disparities 
I think we all know that Minnesota has some of the deepest disparities um, related to race equity in education around graduation rates and also uh, school discipline issues. And so it's a it's a way to really try to uh, work towards uh, reducing those disparities. You're also a member of the Posse Caucus. So can you tell us what that entails? And what that is, if, if uh, our listeners don't know. <laughs> Yes, I yes, I will share. Uh, so the Posse Caucus is short for the People of Color and Indigenous Caucus. And it is uh, members of the House of Representatives that uh, represents not only um, individuals from the Black community, Indigenous community, Latinx, and also um, uh, the Asian uh, American community as well. And we are really focused on working towards uh, issues that impact uh, race equity across the state of Minnesota. Um, as part of that, a subgroup of our Posse Caucus is our United Black uh, Legislative Caucus as well. And you know, this is a group that um, last year in the wake of the murder of George Floyd and the civil unrest that led um, not only around issues of, of police reform, but um, I also worked really closely with the group when I co-authored um, or when I uh, chief authored rather House Resolution 1 declaring racism a public health crisis. And that resolution that passed with bipartisan support was able to create a House Select Committee on Racial Justice which gave us a report last year with 83 recommendations that came from our community. And that's just phenomenal on so many grounds, and we're going to be able to unpack that uh, little by little. I also um, want to say that in order to have a Posse Caucus or a United Black Legislative Caucus, there has to be enough numbers, and that is so exciting that we have the numbers now. Uh, I worked at the House of Representatives I'm going to date myself from 1989 to 1991, and we did not have uh, those numbers. We had one pretty much here and there uh, of each of you know these uh, BIPOC communities, but we did not have the numbers that we're seeing today. And, and that is just so inspiring, and it, it just really helps us understand the importance of voting and why it's so important for all of us to take our civic responsibility seriously to enable leaders like you to be elected into these state offices. And I would say Rena Moran, uh, Representative Moran agrees with you. She was alone for many years and is now excited to have, uh, in total, we have eight members in the United uh, Legis Black Legislative Caucus. Amazing. Amazing. So Representative Richardson, I, I, I wonder if you would just share a little bit about why you ran for office. Um, I mean, you're a young woman of color, and I think that's so awesome, but we don't see that very often, especially, you know, in, in the district, I think that you represent. Well, first, I'm very excited that you referred to me as a young woman. Um, I will take it. <laughs> um, and, you know, my my path uh, to running for office was not a traditional one. I like to think of myself as an accidental politician in, in many ways. There was no grand strategy or plan that got me here. And in fact, when I made the decision to run for office, um, I got into the race uh, 
pretty late in 2018. It was actually two weeks before caucuses that I uh, made the decision to run for office. And it really came uh, from a number of people approaching me and asking me to run. Um, when the first person that month asked me to run, I kind of blew it off. I had a second person ask me that week who was unrelated to that first person. And I thought, that's odd, you know, to have two people in a week say, hey, I really think you should run for office. Um, and fast forward, within a couple of weeks, I had four people approach me and say, I really think you should run for office. And at that moment, I thought, well, should I run for office? And I reached out to my family and friends, and they all encouraged me to do so. And, you know, the the story reminds me of what I've heard from so many other women who run from, for office. Sometimes it takes asking women several times. I think the average is seven times uh, before a woman will make a decision to run for office. Well, I was asked four times and then I asked 20 of my closest friends. So I'm a little out of average. <laughs> I'll tell you, I have known Representative Richardson for 12 years. I was doing the math as you were talking. And <laughs> this is definitely something that I did not expect her to do in her career, which is run for public office. I was thrilled when she, she said yes, but um, to say that that uh, Representative Richardson is, is, uh, a, has a quiet presence um, would be an understatement. I mean, she's just very much under the radar uh, extremely bright. We worked together when I was ahead of uh, the Human Rights and Equal Economic Opportunity Department for the City of St. Paul, which is where we we uh, first met and we worked together. And I would have never pegged Representative Richardson as someone who would want to run, but when she did, um, it was phenomenal, and and she's just made such a big impact in the short time that she's been there. The first thing that jumped in my mind is what was it that you were doing that mm -hmm. these individuals approached you to run? Oh, re really good question. And, you know, for the last uh, 15, uh, I guess almost 20 years now, I've been working in community in various different ways. Uh, the first time that I got engaged in policy matters was when I was in law school. And I worked with a group of homeless veterans and also legal aid and some other stakeholders and advocates to uh, help repeal the state's uh, vagrancy law. We saw the vagrancy oh, wow. law, and I don't know if everyone knows what the uh, state's vagrancy law used to read, but pretty much in short, if you were uh, out in public without a legal means of being able to support yourself, you could be classified as a vagrant and you could be arrested. Mm. Uh, vagrancy laws have a dark history in this country. They are outgrowths of black codes um, and, and thinking about ways of keeping um, individuals who were recently freed under the Emancipation Proclamation uh, subject to being arrested and enslaved once again, because we know that there's that loophole 
um, in our Constitution under the 13th Amendment that allows uh, individuals to be uh, enslaved, frankly, um, if they are incarcerated. And so um, after working with that group and being successful on that effort, I worked with lots of other coalitions to help uh, get different legislation passed, um, issues around disability, uh, education, and uh, also supporting uh, women who are pregnant and parenting with substance use disorders. And so that, I think, was part of the reason that people saw me as someone that uh, they had really wanted to push to, to run in that, uh, in that election. Wow. Congratulations. I mean, um, to have uh, community members approach you like that and to prompt you, and I think your community is... Um, and Rich, Representative Richardson, um, so I was wondering if you could, um, um, you know, this, the past year or so, you mentioned since the murder of, uh, of George Floyd, and I know that on Counter Stories, we have talked not only about ramifications of, of, um, of George Floyd's murder, but the reverberations and the effort, the discussions that are happening in terms of, of racial, you know, equity, racial equity, um, and making systemic change. And it sounds like that is very much, you know, where a lot of your career has been, has been involved with, including now as a, a state representative. And so I was wondering if there's any legislation that you, you might be able to share with us that, that you might have authored that uh, was successfully incorporated or passed? Yeah, sure. You know, and the, um, you know, what was interesting about last legislative uh, session um, in, in January, it's, it started as other uh, sessions um, had, and we were on track hearing, hearing bills and the COVID pandemic struck. Mm. And, you know, the moment that the uh, pandemic became a real reality and people began to really understand just how um, deeply this uh, pandemic was going to impact our communities and just how deadly it was. What struck me is how everything within the legislature stopped. We stopped talking about other bills and every bill that we heard was about the COVID pandemic and it was about the response to it because the, the, the thought process was this is a crisis. People are dying in extraordinary numbers and we need to stop everything that we are doing and we need to confront this public health crisis. And so with that lens, when George Floyd was murdered in Minneapolis and we all saw that viral video, we all, we all saw that. And I remember sitting there in the aftermath of that with the trauma, with the grief, with all the pain that, that comes with, um, with not only seeing that, but also knowing that this has been um, a continuing uh, pattern it struck me that no one was stopping and no one was saying anything about the fact that 
racism is a public health crisis mm. and it's decimating communities and people are dying um, every single day. And we're not stopping and we're not saying we're going to have an exclusive focus on something that has been um, so deadly for centuries within 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 our country. And so in the aftermath of George Floyd's death, um, there was a lot of focus on police reform. And there were many bills that were carried, um, some that we're still fighting for, that we have not been able to get across um, uh, the finish line and signed into law. Uh, bills like the statute of limitations bill that would allow um, people to have the time to actually uh, file um, claims, knowing mm-hmm. that um, sometimes after a loved one is killed or murdered by police, those statute of limitation timelines are so short. And when people are grieving, um, they may not be in the headspace to be able to address that. Or if investigations are taking such a long period of time, a statute of limitation might expire before someone can um, address that. Um, We had some bills that were able to get across the finish line. Um, One of my bills that was signed into law banned warrior training. And I don't know if you've ever heard about the warrior training um, uh, uh, that law enforcement officials would sometimes take advantage of, but the one of the lines from the training that has stuck with me Uh, was an officer saying that um, you need to be polite, you need to be cordial, but you need to be prepared to kill every woman, man, and child that you meet. And so that's the framework in which you approach your job every day. That is a setup um, for uh, situations like we saw with uh, the murder of George Floyd. And so, um, you know, those were some of the the bills, like in the aftermath of, of George Floyd's murder that um, we were work, working on, and in also including bills that uh, also focused on use, uses of force um, and, and banning chokeholds and, and things like that. So I know that folks were um, unhappy about uh, the bills not making it, what what is that? What 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 is the delay in that? Do you see? You know, I think that you know, for a number of of the bills, it it really comes down to um, having, I think, different perspectives, different life uh, experiences, and also a divided chamber. Um, so here in Minnesota, we have a really unique status. We're the only uh, legislature in the nation that is divided. And so what that means is on the House side, we have a um, majority, we have a, a, a very thin majority of, of Democratic control. And on the Senate side, it's uh, Republican uh, controlled. And so there you know, to get some of the bills across the finish line, there are lots of blood, sweat and tears um, in order to get there. And uh, the fight um, still and the fight still uh, uh, continues. You know, I heard years ago someone um, said that politics are personal 
And so often what we see in terms of what moves people to legislation, there's oftentimes a, a personal um, uh, connection to it. Stories are powerful, and that's why podcasts like this can be so helpful in terms of helping uh, to raise awareness on, on, on issues. And in my short time at the legislature, what, I, what I've learned is that it's the powerful stories uh, married with uh, the data that really helps to, to move things. And so we're just continuing to do the work and uh, to, to fight to try to uh, get to meaningful police reform, which is, um, is something that the majority of, Mar- of Americans want to see happen. So when you talked about the margin, the thin margin in the House, and we should be paying attention because this is a midterm election coming up as well, right? Yes, um, this is a midterm election and everyone in the legislature is going to be up for uh, re-election in 2022. So um, not only uh, House of Representatives, but also Every single state senator is also going to be up for re-election as well. Yeah, we've got to pay attention. So let's get into some of the details now with respect to some of the uh, bills that you have been a chief author. And maybe before we go down the path of talking about uh, one particular piece of legislation that I think uh, people really need to understand, is talk to us about the process of being a chief author. I mean, I'm familiar with it, having worked there, but it is quite the arduous process to be able to become a chief author of a bill and have enough support for it and your co-authors and things of that sort. Do you want to kind of walk us through that process as well? Yeah, it is. Um, you know, some people may call it herding cats, <laughs> um, you know, just trying to get all the, the pieces together. Or I'll give you a, a, a throwback uh, phrase, lose uh, nailing jello to a tree. Oh. Uh, to try to get <laughs> what does that mean? Oh, my God. <laughs> well, we know that jello is, is so popular in Minnesota. So that's a fitting uh, analogy. <laughs> right up there with hot dish, huh? There you go. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so, you know, part of the, you know, I think an important part of the process is one, it's, it starts with the language, right? It starts with um, working uh, with uh, nonpartisan staff in order to get the, the language uh, written and shout out to our nonpartisan staff. They are superheroes and every, um, in every uh, sort of uh, state of the word, but um, and once once we get that drafted, um, it's we drop it in the hopper. And I will tell you, as a freshman legislator, the first time that I signed a bill and I was searching for the hopper, I was looking for this magical thing, <laughs> and then I found out it was a wire basket. <laughs> high tech, huh? Really high tech. Yeah. And I was like, uh, why didn't they just say the wire basket? I guess the hopper sounds much more uh, magical than the uh, wire basket by the speaker's office. So, um, 
And then once that bill is inter, uh, introduced, um, we have the ability to have it heard within, uh, uh, within committee. And the committee process, I think, is really important because it gives the public and, uh, the, the opportunity, uh, to be able to, um, hear about that bill, to testify on that bill, and you're able to bring uh, people who support the bill or people who are against the bill and to really have that discussion um, in the open um, to determine if it's a bill that should be uh, moved forward. And once those bills are heard, there's the option of voting on them and having them move forward. Sometimes uh, chairs will lay them over and hold on to them to, to possibly include them later. But um, I think the most important part of the process is really that community engagement piece. Nice, nice. So Represent- Representative Richardson, um, so you talked about the process of like generating or, or being the chief author of a bill, but there are, aren't there other ways? I mean, um, so I know that yeah, at one point in time, I worked for the uh, Department of Human Services. So I know that language for bills can be, uh, can be written by community members, by, you know, lobbyists, by, and then they go around searching for representatives or senators to become um chiefs of that of those bills or to sponsor that bill is that a similar process or or different than what you just explained yeah i it's 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 similar you know i will say that i'm a legislator that likes to draft some of my own bills and i like to work with community to draft bills um and on occasion i will entertain a lobbyist or two but um in in terms of the way that i tend to approach my work i really try to um work with a community at the center and also ensure that as I'm thinking about bills or my community uh, is thinking about bills that we're engaging individuals who are really closest to the issues. Um, and if there are issues of, of equity, uh, those who are closest to the pain of those issues to help be a part of the strategies and solutions. Representative Richardson, one of the key pieces of legislation that you were able to get through the finish line, so to speak, uh, from the hopper right into discussion and passage and negotiation and into then the finish line to become law is known as the Dignity in Pregnancy and Childbirth Act. Can you walk us through that and, and have us understand what motivated you to come up with that uh, legislation in the first uh, part and, and also what it means for our community now that it's law? Yeah, of course. I'll, I'll maybe start with sharing a little bit about what inspired me to do this bill. Um, you know, I shared earlier that politics are personal and there's oftentimes uh, personal experience and personal uh, stories that are tied into things. And, you know, the first time that I really understood what um, some of the inequities and the mistreatment that Black women would experience during pregnancy and childbirth. I was in elementary school, and I had this project of where we were 
sharing about our, our birth stories. And what struck me when, um, you know, I heard other people's uh, stories, um, you know, other students and other uh, friends' stories, they were telling these lovely stories of, of, of pregnancy and of childbirth. And when I talked uh, to my mom, she shared some of the really horrific experiences that she had. Um, my mom um, uh, grew up in Mississippi. Uh, her mm. her parents were sharecroppers. She, she grew up uh, picking cotton in the fields of Mississippi. And her first um, uh, experience in a hospital giving birth was with her second uh, child, my, my sister. And she shared with me about how she was laying on the table. She was uh, deep, deep in labor and there's a nurse in the room. There were two doctors at the foot of the bed and um, my sister's head had started to crown and the nurse turned around to the doctors and she said, doctors, the baby's coming. And the doctor irritated that their conversation had been interrupted said we're not ready yet and pushed my sister's head back in the birth canal oh my goodness oh my god and what yes and my mom shared that the pain was horrific it was she said it was the, the worst pain that i ever felt in my life she said but also that pain saved her life she said, because if she had been able to get off of that table, she would have retaliated. Mm -hmm. And she knew that she would have lost her life that day if she would have done that. And what also struck me when she was telling me this story was I was thinking, that's horrible that that happened and that that happened to you. And she said, it happened to many women. And she began to share how her sister had a very similar experience. But in that situation, um, her daughter uh, died as a result of that. Mm. And she shared how that experience was not unique. And, you know, that never left me. You know, at that time, I didn't know words like health inequities or disparities, but I knew that wasn't right. And, you know, fast forward to my own experience um, giving birth and being mistreated by doctors um, having a cousin who died after um, begging for help, um, which could have been prevented, is what brought me to the place of wanting to do this bill, uh, the Dignity and Pregnancy and Childbirth Act bill, because I really understood that this legacy of mistreatment, it's not abated. It's still here. And when you look at the data, we know that Black women are three to four times more likely to die from a pregnancy-related cause um, than, uh, than, than white women. And you can control for all the variables. You can control for education, for housing, substance use disorder status, familial status, um, mental health status, whether they have access to insurance. Um, you can control for all those factors and black women are still more likely to die. I think people, people don't understand that um, there are still these 
these issues in the medical field. I mean, a lot, I, you know, in a lot of the work that I've done with clinics and whatnot, I think a lot of times when we talk about, you know, in- inequities in treatment, people always say, well, if, if, if they're a doctor, they want to help people, right? So that doesn't make any sense that they'd want to be a doctor and not help the person just because this person's black or treat this person differently, just because maybe they don't speak English. And that's such a misconception. I think it's 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 so hard for people to believe that it happens just like it's so hard for people to believe that the police who you know are supposed to serve and protect um don't always serve and protect and it's this thing that we've that's been ingrained in our minds that you know doctors and police officers are here to help but that's not the case for everybody and i think that's this narrative that's missing, especially for people who who aren't people of color, right? White people who don't experience this, they it's so often they don't believe that it's happening. My mom was having some chest pains, and she this one time, and uh, she my dad walked her out to the living room from the bedroom, and we called an ambulance. And when the ambulance came, this like the white this white lady who was like in charge was like, okay, well get in the ambulance. And my mom was like, can you help me? And she was like, well you made it out here. I was going to, I was like 16. I was going to punch this lady. Like I'm freaking out. My mom is having chest pains. And she was like, well, you walked from your bedroom to the living room. Just, oh, it happens. It happens. And people, people don't even realize it happens. Well, and you make such an important point because, you know, there are so many hidden figures in this, so many people's names that you don't know. And what really shined a light on this, which has been an issue, not just recently, but has been an issue uh, for for centuries in this country, is uh, Serena Williams. Serena, Serena Williams made uh, national news when she almost died during pregnancy. And her story was the story that shone a national spotlight on this. Um, Serena uh, had a C-section. And shortly after having that C-section, she began to have difficulty breathing. Um, She had a history of blood clots. She had blood clots in her lungs before. She knew what that felt like. She got out of her uh, bed um, shortly after a C-section, went and found the closest nurse that she could find, and she's gasping for air at this point, and she she let the nurse know that she needed a CT scan and a heparin drip, and the nurse thought that she was confused, so she just sent her back, you know, to to her bed, and uh, Serena continued to ask for help. So then they eventually sent in a doctor and he did an ultrasound of her legs and that found nothing. It's like, you're fine. And she continued to demand that they do a CT scan. Finally, they do a CT scan and they find that she has several blood clots in her lungs. And by that time, they had waited so long, the uh, gasping for air and the coughing had opened up her C-section. And so as a result, she had to undergo uh, an emergency surgery um, to repair that. And the next six days, it was a life or death ordeal that she was dealing with as a result of that. And ultimately, when she was um, uh, able to go home, 
she was on um, uh, complete bed rest for six weeks, unable to bond with her daughter in the way that um, she needed to and wanted to. And it was all related to the delay in medical treatment. And it was also um, related to the fact that her black voice wasn't heard within that space. Her story is similar to so many others. It's, it's that dismissiveness of uh, black pain that we hear so much about, right? Is just dismissing that the black person, patient, doesn't really understand what's going on rather than being given the benefit of the doubt and believing what the pain level is. Um, I think so also when you're saying lose like the the invisible kind of the not seen and not heard of part, I think a lot of people like I didn't even know that happened to Serena Williams until the whole controversy over what she wore at the, you know, at a tennis game and during a match saying she right. couldn't wear her cat suit. And that's when I heard about all the complications that she had had. I think like, you know, we just don't hear about these things. Right. And, and, to both of your points, Haley and, and Representative Richardson, this happens so often, but we don't know about it. And I reflect on my own experience with my second child in my pregnancy. I was pregnant in the wintertime and, and folks who know me know that I'm a freeze baby. I'm always cold. So I was, I got to a point, I, I'll remember very clearly uh, in December, so three months uh, before my due date, I started to gasp for air and I felt like I couldn't breathe. And I was going into work wearing short sleeves, thinking I was just hot. And I would step outside without a coat to help get some air in my lungs. And I called my OB. We went in and uh, the OB says, uh, there's nothing wrong with you. And I said, well, this is happening every single day. And I feel that I can't breathe. And she says, well, you know, just you're carrying your pregnancy high, you know, as opposed to a low uh, position. And I, I, I'm telling her over and over, I know there, uh, there's something more than this going on. And I had not gained the amount of weight that I had gained in my first pregnancy. So it wasn't my, my size. So long story short, they did authorize um, an exam. Uh, an x-ray of some sort that looked at my lungs and it came back and the OB says there's nothing wrong and sends me back on my way. Three months later, I, I give birth and it's a very complicated birth and I, I won't go into details, but um, our daughter was was really suffering uh, through the birth process as was I. Uh, she She came into the world with bruises uh, around her face and lacerations around her eyes and, and so forth. Two weeks after giving birth, I develop a really bad cough. And so I go into my regular uh, practitioner and for the cough and they x-ray my lungs and he comes back with this scared look on his face. And he says, I can't believe what I'm seeing here. And um, he asked me, did I have a major event in the last few months? And I said, well, I gave birth. If it, I mean, that's kind of major. And so he called me over to the x-ray screen to show me the film from, from that x-ray that was taken of my lungs during my pregnancy and what was taken here now two weeks after my birth, the birth. 
And he said, look at your, the heart in the x-rays from your pregnancy. Your heart is enlarged, almost not fitting mm. in your chest cavity. You were on the brink of dying and they didn't catch this. Oh. And he was so alarmed. That's why I couldn't breathe um, is because my, my heart couldn't pump the amount of blood. There's, there's a rare condition during pregnancies where your, your body produces more blood than is necessary. So your heart then enlarges and it was, it was barely fitting into my chest cavity. He says, now look at what your heart looks like now. And so he asked me for my permission at that point to report that other physician to the board and to uh, allow me to have them use my medical records in service of uh, pursuing, you know, some action and, and training for uh, his colleagues there. But it was, it was pretty scary to see that at that point, but also the validation that I knew something was wrong, but I'm not medically trained. I couldn't figure that out. And for as much as I try to get that OBGYN practitioner to listen, uh, she she was not listening. And, and that story is so important because it goes to the trend that we see. 60% of these deaths, actually over 60% of these deaths, according to the CDC, are preventable. And it's all related to whether uh, people have a uh, a doctor who is going to take the time um, to hear them, uh, to see them, and 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 to support them, and, and that's the that's the heartbreaking um, facts around this is so many lives lost, and it, they could have been prevented. You guys, I'm I'm still in shock. I'm sorry, I'm. I'm still in shock over that story that uh, Representative Richardson shared about her mother. And, and right, uh, I I'm sorry. I I just you know that, that <laughs> I just I I didn't know what to say. The inhumanity of of a of a situation like that just it just you know it, I have to kind of control my anger. And um, because um, I can imagine if that's happening to Black women, it's happening to Native women. It's mm -hmm. happening to other women of color. Mm -hmm. And I mean that it just that just kind of wow. So I'm sorry I got quiet because I didn't know how to respond. I mean I was just kind of in shock hearing well, that story. So it it, it these I'm, results of are exactly that when we can't see a person's humanity <laughs> and all of the ways that black women, indigenous women, Latinx women, um, Asian women have been um, seen as less than in mm -hmm. so many ways. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's infuriating <laughs> for lack of wow. a better word. I mean, Donna, I'm with you. I'm with you. I got a pit in my stomach when. Hmm. Well, I'm, and it's the fact that you know when when you when you mention this legislation, and you know I I had no idea, just yeah you know, I I didn't have a clue, and so but to hear that story, um, 
that personal story and why th this was so important. I mean, this story took me, just took me back to my mom's experience at a boarding school and, and probably some of the experiences she had in childbirth and, you know, tied it back a little bit to the previous conversation we had about stillborn um, and how that's all kind of interrelated. But this story just shocked the, the heck out of me. I'm sorry. I just didn't know what to say afterwards. And that doesn't happen that often. You know what I mean? And and so I, I'm not apologizing, but it was just, I wasn't ready for that. Well, and, and we uh, and we didn't even get to the infant mortality piece of this either. And it's, you know, Black and Indigenous infants are twice as likely to die before their first birthday when compared with white infants. And what's really troubling is the most recent research that shows that that when black infants have a black pediatrician, that infant mortality rate is cut in half. So just by virtue of having mm. a black doctor delivering a black baby means that that baby is more likely uh, to, uh, to survive. And so it just tells you that, again, this is, you know, these deaths are preventable and we can and we should be doing better in, in so many ways. Wow. Unbelievable. But I, I was literally in just in trauma, just thinking about what she shared. And it's, I just, it, it's the, the utter inhumanity. Mm, that's the, that's the right word right there. Yeah. It's that, barbaric, really that barbaric. I, I, I mm -hmm. just, I can't dip. My mind doesn't comprehend how being inconvenienced can turn around and, you know, and warrant an action like that. It just, it, it, it doesn't comprehend. Yeah, I appreciate you amplifying this. Um, it, this is the only way that we're going to get to change. Because uh, as you said, so many people don't know. They don't know these histories. They don't know the stories. I mean, you could even get into the whole historical piece of this um, from all of the horrific uh, experiments, the pain piece, because there's just this belief that um, uh, black people don't feel pain. And you want to think that that's some, some old relic from hundreds of years ago, but that's when we're looking at um, today's medical students and, and residents. There are these these thoughts that black uh, people don't feel pain in the same way, that our, our skin is thicker. And um, that's right. There's, that's and right. you want to, you, you don't want to recognize the fact that we're not talking about people from a long time ago. We're talking about people who are going to be our future providers. Hmm. Wow. It is still happening. As you said today, medical students are still learning quote unquote, that the black skin is thicker, therefore impervious to pain. Therefore, we don't give them the same pain, pain medications and just let them sit in pain, longer excruciating pain, pain that white people don't have to navigate at all. At every age level, from kids through uh, senior citizens. Unbelievable. So we, we know what, uh, Representative Richardson, we know what inspired you to, to write this bill. So can you tell us what the bill actually is and says and does? Yes, um, for sure. And um, 
Luz's story set it up really well. Um, you know, part, uh, an important part of this bill is ensuring that there's training. Um, anti-racism and implicit bias training uh, around ensuring that those who are regularly engaged in the course of, of obstetrics um, are being trained on this issue and that they're being trained with an anti-racist um, uh, lens and understanding the reality of how these deaths are coming to be. And so um, the training is an important component of it. And that is for not only doctors working with, within hospitals, but also with the, with the freestanding uh, birth clinics um, as well. And to ensure that the, the training is effective. Um, it's required that it be evidence-based training. And we'll also be working uh, with the University of Minnesota Center for Anti-Racism Research to develop a model curriculum that the hospitals and freestanding birth clinics can use. Um, they'll also be able to use their own as well, but there'll be some um, model examples of training that are going to be available as a part of this. And the other thing that the bill does, it also uh, looks at um, midwifery, so midwife care and uh, uh, doula care. And, you know, thinking of this with uh, culturally, like, a cultural context lens, um, midwives in the black community were very common. Uh, my, my mom's very first birth, she had, um, uh, she had a, a midwife and midwives played a, a hugely important role, um, particularly within, uh, the, the, the deep, uh, the deep south. But as the years have gone on, many, um, Midwives have been pushed out of the field because there are new requirements uh, that um, have sometimes created barriers. And so this would require that the Department of Health really um, identify what are the barriers to ensuring there's access to culturally responsive midwife services and also uh, doula care as well. And, you know, having those doulas there um, as attendants during, uh, during births can be uh, a very um, great support uh, to women uh, to ensure that they, uh, you know, can, can help uh, amplify uh, their voices as well. So impressive. So impressive. And we know that you've authored, chief authored a number of other bills that are really important for our communities to learn about. Do you want to give us a, an idea of what those uh, pieces of legislation are and how they impact our communities? Sure. You know, I'll leave you with a couple of other uh, bills that we were able to um, get signed into law. Um, I'm, I'm very heartened that we were able to get the missing and murdered Black women and girls uh, task force bill um, signed into uh, signed into law. Uh, people don't often know that Black women and Black girls are overrepresented in not only missing person reports, but also within um, homicide cases uh, as well. And what we know is from a media perspective, um, Black women and girls don't get the same media coverage 
um, you know, when compared uh, to white women or white girls. And what the data tells us is that their cases remain um, open four times longer than the cases of, of, of white women. And, you know, the, the data is really alarming. Um, we know that uh, homicide is a leading, a leading cause of death um, for, for, all, for all women, but it's significantly higher uh, for, for black women. And, you know, the, the CDC, uh, has looked at this and we know that, um, uh, black women are, are 4.4 uh, times more likely, um, to be a victim of homicide. And even here in Minnesota specifically, we were able to get some preliminary data from the Department of Public Safety and, um, black women are, are being killed at a rate that is, uh, 2.7 times higher than white women within the state. And so we're really hopeful that this task force is going to help to provide a roadmap to look at not only, um, the causes of these uh, disparities, but also help to create a, a roadmap to addressing, uh, to addressing them as well. And you know, the I know that we don't have uh, very much uh, time time left, but there are just a, a number of different equity provisions that were signed into law, um, and I'm hoping that y'all can keep the conversation going around some of those things on counter stories too. Thank you, Representative Richardson. Um, before we finish, I think I'd just like to ask, um, you know, what advice you might have for other folks of color, especially women um, who have been asked to run or uh, are considering running for uh, elected office? You know, I think the advice that I would give is that there is no particular resume or uh, degree <laughs> that prepares you to run for office. I know that uh, sometimes uh, as, as, as women, we can be faced with imposter syndrome. Are we the right person? Is it the right time? Am I going to be effective? Am I what the community needs? And, you know, what really prepares people to run for office is their life experience. That life experience is invaluable. Um, the ability to be able to uh, connect with people, to truly listen, and to, um, you know, be united uh, in, a, in a fight for a better Minnesota. Like if you can check those categories off, you it's the right time, it's the right place, um, and 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 you should run. So um, don't wait your turn. Uh, be bold, and you know help us build a Minnesota that works for everyone. You are the epitome for why we need to make sure people vote. Because with you in office, you're making such a tremendous impact on our community and your dedication to making sure that we are building a community for all uh, folks to be welcomed and included in, that that's really the heart and soul of, I know who you are uh, professionally and personally. And I'm just so grateful that, that you're there and we're as Don said earlier, we're so much more enriched 
with your representation at the House of Representatives for us. Um, thank you so much, and hopefully we'll have you back uh, in the future. Anytime. Thanks for having me. That's a wrap for Counter Stories, the podcast by people of color, for people of color, and everybody else. I'm Luz Maria Frias, Deputy Attorney General with the state of Minnesota. Any comments and opinions that I've made are strictly my own and should not be attributed to my employer. I'm Don Eubanks, Associate of Dendros, Cultural Consultant, and member of the Mille Band of Ojibwe Indians. And I'm Halili, owner of the Other Media Group and producer of Counter Stories. I'm Representative Ruth Richardson, and thank you for having me on Counter Stories today. I enjoy talking to you all. This program is a co-production of the Counter Stories crew, the other media group, and Ampers, Diverse Radio for Minnesota's Communities, with support from the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. <laughs>